Genesis 49, 1 through 28. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I might tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstring oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe, let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father and mighty beyond the bless are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. It is good to be back. Uh, if you're relatively new to Emmanuel, if you've uh, just started attending the church in the last few weeks, I'm Scott. I'm the pastor of the church. 
uh, and I was away for a period, uh, the month of July. So our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, has our General Assembly. This year it was in St. Louis, so I was there. Uh, and then my wife, Kathy, is from California, so we took vacation in the West Coast. Uh, vacation was good. It was great to uh, have some time away, to be in a beautiful setting, to see family, to have time with my immediate family, to take some liberties with what and how much I ate. Uh, but it is good to be back. I actually um, sincerely am, am very glad to be back. You know, the last year was a hard year in many ways for all of us. Uh, but as a church, one of the things that, that's uh, been so valuable uh, for us is that we are a community. I'm not just an employee of the church, but I'm, I'm part of the community. My friends, my Christian family are here. And last year, we did our best with Zoom to try to stay connected. But I, like many of you, um, you know, felt the loss, the disconnection, and, and we're still not out of the woods. We still don't know how things will go in September, but, but returning, <laughs> being able to be here, and the hope that we will be sharing meals and talking and praying together and doing these various things. Quite excited about it, quite encouraged by it, so I am glad to be here. Um, now, in the winter and spring, the sermon series was in the last section of the book of Genesis where the focus is on the Joseph stories. He's the key character, but it's not just about him, it's about Jacob, it's about the other sons. And we were looking at that um, for a number of reasons. One, it's just a great section of the Bible, uh, but also in a period where for our entire city, our country, our world, and affecting all of us, we've been in this difficult stretch where there's confusion, we don't know the future, we can't understand exactly what's happening or we're disagreeing about it, um, we feel like we don't have control. Um, and that then takes root in our individual lives and a major struggle. The Bible presents a God who is active in the midst of things. And that's a great comfort and encouragement, except for these periods where we don't see what he's doing. We can't make sense of his work. And so looking at the Joseph story is helpful because God is present. God is at work. But it's this long stretch of time where things keep getting worse and keep going wrong. And you could imagine Joseph, we don't get insight into everything that he was thinking, but if I were Joseph, I would be sitting there much of the time saying, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Are you answering my prayers? And only until you come to the end, you start to see the wisdom of God that he was at work through all of the brokenness, the terrible decisions, the injustice, all of these things. Somehow God was still at work in that so by the end, we get a sense, a reminder of the frailty and the, the problems of humanity, but the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. And so we were supposed to end the series at the end of June, but uh, in the midst of last year, we had opportunities like a joint service with Uptown and with King's Cross, guest preachers. Uh, so that meant that the, uh, the, the series didn't finish. So we have today and two more weeks. So it's a bit awkward having that July break. Uh, but we're coming now to the end of that section, the end of this series, where we're looking at uh, the, how things conclude at the end of Genesis with the, with the Joseph stories. And we're talking about that redemptive story because the Christian message invites us into the story of Scripture, which is redemptive, and, and, and it, we reconstitute our own lives in light of that. Um, if you think about a, a mystery story or, or, or a book in that kind of genre, like crime fiction, but it doesn't need to be crime fiction, uh, it's actually really hard to write a good mystery story. Because on the one hand, 
if things are so obvious that the reader all along knows what's going to happen, then it's not engaging, it's not stimulating. But a book is a bit, bit of a closed system. There's only so many details you could throw in, and so a good writer may have some rabbit trails or some misleading things or something that's ambiguous. So as you're reading it, you think you know who it is, but you're not sure, and then you're excited about surprises. But, but it's really hard because unless the book becomes very long or very random, so at the end, when you find out who did it, it you know, there's so many details in the book that don't make sense, that's also dissatisfying. So to write a good story, where the details make sense, but, but their surprises is really hard to do. Now, when we read the Bible, the Bible, there's 66 books um, collected over a thousand years of writing, more than a thousand. Um, the Bible is so big and so complex that when you read it, it's hard to see, is there a, a clear narrative that it's going to, it feels like there's lots of rabbit trails, lots of confusion. And the Bible is meant to help us in life. That's, that's what we're told. Read the Bible and you'll, you'll learn who God is, what he says, what he's done, what his purposes for you are. What a great hope, what a great promise, but the Bible is confusing. How do I make sense of this? Because I'm trying to use that to make sense of my life, but, but the Bible is like my life, filled with all of these details that I can't make sense of. And so the, uh, if the Bible was 200 pages and if our lives were six months, maybe everything would be clear. Um, some years ago, I saw a documentary on a, on a crime, a real-life situation, and it was striking to me how different it was from crime novels. <laughs> that, that the police investigation, they were getting false tips and they would spend weeks pursuing something that was completely irrelevant. They, they uh, misjudged some of the uh, elements of the crime scene and therefore wasted time on that. One detail I remember from the show they realized, uh, they wanted to get camera footage from a certain area that um, the, the person they were looking for likely used a certain ATM machine to take money out. So they get the video, so the, the ATM machine has a camera on it, and they're reviewing the video, but the image quality is so poor that they couldn't even make out the, the difference between the various people that that came. How different is that from most crime shows that you read, where instead what typically happens on TV is, you know, they're going down the rabbit trail and then they're all in the room uh, reviewing the video and somebody says, wait, what's that? What? They're in the corner. So, so you know, so here's, here's the, the, the light from the camera. There's a, there's a car three blocks away. And then the actor, who looks like he never learned to type, uses his cookie monster fingers to go and it's like, we've got the license plate and now we could find the guy. In a show, you can do that. The car three blocks away you could find. In the real investigation, the guy standing for two minutes in front of a camera, we can't even tell if he has a beard. That's the real-life crime investigation. Um, you know, you read the Bible, and there are these clear markers, but, but it's so hard to make sense of. And then you look at your own life, and your life is filled with details. And what are the key ones? What are the defining ones? On the whole, we are terrible. <laughs> at reading the Bible, we're terrible at reading our own stories, we're terrible at interpreting the world, and so we grasp onto the wrong details uh, or the wrong groups. So an example, this is not my story, but a, but a typical kind of story of somebody saying, hey look, when I was four or five, my parents signed me up for gymnastics. I loved it, it was so much fun. You just get to do these things, and all of a sudden I get to the second grade, and everyone's good, and I'm not, and so I hated it and dropped out. And I was always good at math in school, and all of a sudden I get to middle school, 
And math just became hard. <laughs> I didn't like it. And then I get to high school, and I'm dating someone who I really like, and the person breaks up with me. And now I'm noticing a pattern. What's the pattern? The pattern is a pattern of failure. Things don't work out. You know, whenever I apply myself to do something, I put in my energy, and everything seems exciting, and then they don't work out. And the, you know, the, our minds look for patterns. You find that pattern, and the usefulness of a pattern is we don't know the future. And so you have that pattern, and now you know what could you expect in the future. I now know who I am. I'm a person who gives my all, and things are never good enough. I'm a person. Whom things are disappointing, and, and that's now what I'm going to expect. Is the future fixed? No, but as I'm watching things, it's like, yeah, the pattern is repeating itself. And so there you are. Now you know who you are. You know what your identity is. You know what you could expect, and you just have to deal with it. Now the alternative of actually having success is not so much better because if your story was second grade success and middle school success and high school success. Then you go into the world with with the kind of perspective in the future that you think everything is going to work out wonderfully, which gives you the confidence that things often do. But then, when one thing goes wrong, people look and they're like, "Why can't that person deal with failure? Failure is normal. Everyone knows that failure is a normal part of life. Why is failure a problem for you? Especially when you've been so successful. Well, failure could be a problem because all of a sudden, you think you misread the pattern." <laughs> I looked back and I thought success, 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 but but this moment makes me think I was wrong. And now it's not simply that I failed, but I I've lost a sense of who I am. I don't know what the future is. See, we construct these stories based on our own observations, and we think we know the future. We think we know what will happen. And and human stories are typically non-redemptive. Somehow, it's not going to end well. Somewhere, there's there's a An experience of failure, or disappointment, or shame, or something that we can't overcome. The Bible presents one counter story, and it and it goes through the whole Bible and reaches its climax in the coming of Christ. And we're told if you understand that story, and if you join your life to it, you start to get a new sense of identity, a new understanding of what you're experiencing. That it's not some magical quick fix for everything, but it's a It's a beginning of repairing. It's the starting of constructing hope. It creates a possibility for a new future. And so, it's important to know the Bible story, and it's important to know our own story as interpreted by God. What He says about us, what He shows us, what His plans or purposes are.、Uh, I took that, that that long introduction because we're going into a passage now as we go into Genesis 49. A very long poem, and we don't have details. It would be great to look at、uh, what what the the announcement for each of the the particular people are. We don't have time for that, so I'm going to focus on two: Judah and Joseph, because the longest amount is allotted to them.、Um, on the one hand, in verse 28, says, "These are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him." So, so what happens next is Jacob dies. So this, these are his last recorded words before his death, this last period, and and you can imagine a father who wants to bless his kids. Hey Asher, I hope that you do well. Maybe maybe you'll be a great cook. Maybe you'll have great food,、uh, have great joy in life. Issachar, here's here's what I wish for you.、Uh, but it tells us it's the twelve tribes of Israel. He's he's now not talking about. He's not wishing his sons well, but Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. He had a broken identity. He was a problematic person. He was called to change because 
Jacob and his sons are a broken family, but Israel will be the heirs to the promises of Abraham, and his kids are not just individual kids, but they will become clans, tribes within a nation. So verse 1 says, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This blessing is not just a father who wants things to go well for his son or sons, but this is uh, the story from Adam to Noah to Abraham continuing through these 12 and their families, their growing families, what can we expect to happen? And it creates a trajectory that helps us follow the narrow, uh, the, the lines of scripture. You know, this is uh, called blessing. The first three individuals in birth order, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then you get to Judah. It doesn't sound like Jacob is blessing Reuben, Levi, and Simeon. It sounds like he's venting his resentment doesn't really look like blessing. And in this time period for this family, in this culture, like many ancient cultures or even modern traditional cultures, the firstborn male was the hope, the one who was preeminent, the heir, the leader. Simply by virtue of Reuben being born first, you think the future of this people, he's going to be the successor. But that's not what happens in the Bible. And here we get an inclination uh, uh, of that. And we find it, you know, in verses 3 and 4. You know, right before the Joseph story that we picked up on where the sermon series begins, there's this weird event. Rachel, the mother of Joseph, who for years had been unable to have children, is pregnant, is giving birth to another child. And as she's giving birth to Benjamin, she dies. It's this tragic moment. Jacob loses his beloved wife. But then she dies... <laughs> And then there's this weird story about Reuben, the firstborn, going and sleeping with Rachel's concubine, the mother of two of his brothers. Everything about this is weird, but there's a power dynamic in terms of Reuben moving in and seeming to uh, put himself in the proper position to be the heir, the leader. He did the exact opposite. He disqualified himself. What on earth was he thinking? So here Jacob tells him, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent, that word preeminent, in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. You cannot lead this people. You're disqualified. You, the future of God's people cannot be in you. Then Levi and Simeon, again, before the Joseph stories, you read about them, rightfully vindicating, uh, avenging the wrong done to their sister. Courageous, bold, righteous anger. But as so often happens when human beings seek vengeance, they overstep the bounds. And so Levi and uh, Simeon, they wind up going in and destroying the entire people of Shechem with terrible violence, so awful that Jacob at the time says, that, like now, we have a permanent problem as a family in this area. And this wasn't just revenge. This wasn't making something right. This was uh, an expression of a wrath that, that far overspilled appropriateness. Levi and Simeon, you are not fit to lead the family. So he says, uh, they killed men. They hum hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. It is fierce. It's cruel. 
He says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And of course, Simeon winds up absorbed eventually into Judah, and Levi gets no possession, scattered. But even here we see the elements of God's grace to these people because Levi gets no possession, no inheritance. They wind up living in the various tribes. But God then says, but you have no possession, but, but you will be my possession. And this is God's redemptive work. He takes these broken people that, and, and their sin disqualifies them, but God repurposes. Levi becomes very crucial but not the future of the family, not the leader, not the ruler. So the next section of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy, who's the key figure? Moses. Moses is a Levite. But Moses is not the ruler. God is the ruler. Moses is his representative. He speaks for God. He leads for God. But God is leading directly. Levi is his servant. Great privilege, but Moses is not the ruler. He's not their king. God is their king. So, so, so then you get the next in the succession is Judah. And we find these words here then create a trajectory through Scripture that you follow through and you find, yeah, this, this is a permanent component of the story. The future of God's people really, somehow, the hope is going to be through the descendants of Judah. And so I'm going to highlight three things that from this passage of the section of Judah. First, uh, Judah's preeminence. Reuben, you are not preeminent. And um, the language of preeminence is not used for Judah, uh, but in, in verse 8, he says, Your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Now, where did the Joseph stories begin? It begins with Joseph having these dreams of the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down that Joseph says, One day, all of you will bow down to me, and they get so angry they want to kill him. But sure enough... One day they do. They don't even know they're doing it. They show up. They don't recognize Joseph. They bow down before him. They hated the dream, and you can't touch a dream, so they try to kill the dreamer. But this was a revelation of God. It was fulfilled. They come and bow down before him. And now Jacob seems to be indicating what happened with Joseph will happen on a much larger scale. It's not through Joseph, but there's the story of the rejected brother. And in rejecting him, he will be the one who brings salvation. And everyone will see it, and they will bow before him. But it's not Joseph. It's, it's what happened in the story of Joseph that will eventually make its way down through the line of Judah. Jesus of the line of Bro Judah, the brother who was rejected, the one whose rejection means salvation. Philippians 2, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the fulfillment. Your father's sons shall down, bow down before you. The king, the ruler, the hope will wind up being in a descendant many years later. So there's the preeminence. The second thing is kingship. So it's not simply that he'll be the first, but, but the king, the ruler. And there's this lion imagery. And of course, in nature, the lion is uh, fierce, beautiful, <laughs> uh, intimidating, uh, the natural top. And so, so there's this sense in which from Judah will become the king's the rulers. And of course, you read the story, uh, and the first great true king is from the line of Judah, David. And the promise to David is one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. You know, there's this, this sharpening, this reaffirming of the plan that eventually leads through the line of Judah to, uh, to Jesus. So this kingship, but there's also prosperity. Now, these last verses about 
um, binding the cult to a vine. Uh, this this sec chapter in general is really hard to translate, hard to make sense of, and even that imagery of binding your your you know your your donkey to the vine. What does that mean? And if you use your imagination, as as this is fulfilled in Jesus. You know, the idea of these robes that get stained with grapes, the way Jesus talks about wine and blood, and, and we get new robes. There's a lot that you could imagine. Well, maybe are these gospel things being alluded to filled out? I don't know. Um, but, you know, sort of a simple interpretation. Um, most people don't, if you have a, a vineyard with a vine, you wouldn't put your donkey by it because when you walk away, what is the donkey going to do? The donkey's going to eat your grapes. And so you, buy, you take your donkey and put him far away from the vineyard. It's almost like this king will be so prosperity, there will be such fruitfulness with his rule that you can bind your foal to the, to the vine. I, I read a commentator gave a modern example, um, like a person who lights a cigarette with a dollar bill. Apparently that's what people that have so much money have. All the rich people I hang out with, you can't light a cigarette with Bitcoin. They only go use cryptocurrency. So I've never seen a cigarette lit with a, with a dollar bill, but apparently you've got your five smoking friends and uh, you light your bill on fire and it shows like, what is this dollar to us? Is there something similar here that, that, that once this ruler comes, the, the prosperity, the, the milk, the grapes, that seems to be what's, what's alluded to that there will be a king that ushers in this age of the prosperity for the vine. But what's interesting is Joseph is the one who winds up described as the vine. Judah is the one who binds his foal to it, but there is a vine, which Joseph uh, is the future of Israel. Judah is the one who will rule over it. But let's look at the Joseph verses. Uh, and again, I'll highlight three things just in, in trying to summarize some of this. Verse 22, Joseph is fruitful. That's important. You know, the imagery of fruitfulness, agricultural, he, uh, Joseph is like a vine that bears fruit. There's health. There's life in it. Um, Jacob is saying, Joseph, one day you will, you will be a people who wind up being fruitful. Verses 23 to the first part of verse 25, we find out why. You will be protected. You will withstand attack and assault. Why? Does he say, because you are a warrior, because you are courageous, because you are brave, because you are wise. He says, no. <laughs> Because God is a shepherd. Because God is the rock. The Almighty will help you, the Father. His blessing on Joseph is you will have fruitfulness because of God's generosity. God the shepherd will lead you. God the rock. And it's interesting how these work together that the, the shepherd comes from Judah. <laughs> the rock comes from Judah, but he will shepherd Joseph, the people. Um, and so, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. Um, and it's by the hands of your father will help you, the Almighty who will bless you, verse 25, with blessings of heaven above. The picture is these are people who will experience fruitfulness, blessing. Now, you follow the story down. When I was a new Christian, I sat down to read the Bible, and I remember reading the book of Genesis, and not knowing exactly where things were going, I remember getting to the end of Genesis and thinking, it seems like Joseph is set up to be the future. That's sort of, you know, the climax of the book, Joseph, the wise figure, the savior of the family, and he gets this promised blessing. And that's not entirely wrong. But the story gets more complicated. Now, this is an oversimplification, useful for our time today, but it's, remember, this is a bit simplistic. But the Bible largely follows, it's a story of two, two lines, Judah and Joseph. Again, it's more than that, but but you see, if you want clarity, the Bible tells the story of 
Joseph and Judah. These two brothers, that, that they get the, the outsized blessing. One will be king, one will be the one who is shepherded, who receives blessing. And then you go through the rest of the Bible and, and you see that playing itself out. So, uh, in the book of Numbers, send the tribes in, spies, to spy out the land and come back with a report. And they come back and what do they say? We're not going to be able to conquer the land. But God will be with you. You didn't see them. They're very big. But there were two people who said we can do it. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua of the line of Ephraim. Caleb of the line of Perez. So, you know, you go back to Genesis, and there are these two birth stories that we looked at in our section. You know, Judah, with his weird story of having uh, Tamar becoming pregnant with twins, and there's, she gives birth, and an arm comes out, the firstborn. That's the one who went, so tie a cord around his arm. Now we know who the future will be, and then, strangely enough, the arm goes back in. I know we have at least one OB in the congregation. I don't know how that happens. I'm not going to try to explain it, but the arm that comes out goes back in, and then a baby comes out, but it's not the one with the cord. <laughs> Perez comes out, not Zara. It's not the first one. It's the second one, the one who breaks through. And then there's this other story about Joseph going to Egypt and having these two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, and Jacob goes to bless them and he crosses his arms. It's not going to be Manasseh, it's going to be Ephraim. So then you find yourself saying, well, I know not to follow Zerah and Manasseh, but I'm going to follow Ephraim, and I'm going to follow Perez, and there, Joshua and Caleb. And what's the, after Moses dies, the book of Joshua, Joshua the Ephraimite, leads into the land, but he doesn't become the ruler. So the book of Judges, the next book, a very strange book, uh, you want to follow the unraveling of all of these tribes, all of these things going wrong, but in Judges 1, Judah is first. And then you go through and you're finding the failures until by the end of the book, Benjamin is nearly entirely wiped out, and you wonder what's going to happen. And then in the meantime, the book of Ruth says, in the days of the judges, here's a story of a righteous family. What's the story? It's the lineage that goes to David. So 1 Samuel, we don't want God to be our king anymore because the nations don't see God. They don't fear us. We need somebody who can be seen. Give us a king. Now, the last words to Benjamin here, Benjamin was never meant to be a leader. The book of Judges, Benjamin was nearly wiped out. But look at Saul. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. That's what a king looks like. He's tall, he's powerful. We want him. Samuel says, but God is your king. We want Saul. Saul is not meant to be the king. The people had a heart for Saul. But then God tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem because there's a man who has a heart for me, David, of the tribe of Judah, in the line of Perez. And David becomes the king. And then you follow the story down. David, one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. Solomon doesn't fulfill that righteousness. And so Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. He's going to keep the, the story alive. And yet there's this guy, Jeroboam, who has to go to Egypt. And he comes out of Egypt, and everyone is angry with Rehoboam because of the way Solomon treated them. And the nation divides permanently, never reconciled. Civil war, the ten tribes go in the north, Judah, and then Benjamin, because he's nearby, some of the Levites because of their service. But the ten tribes in the north, the tribes in the south, so you know that 
that Rehoboam is of the line of Judah because he's the descendant of David. Let's have a trivia quiz. What is your guess for who Jeroboam's family is from? He's an Ephraimite. So here again is Joseph going to be the one that has prominence. For your homework, read Psalm 78. <laughs> Tells the story of Israel and then says at the end of the day it looked like it was going to be Joseph, but God chose Judah. Psalm 78. Read that. I won't get into it now. But the northern tribes follow Jeroboam, who is not meant to be a king. He corrupts their worship. And then, you know, the, the books of kings are very confusing because you're reading about these kings and sometimes you may not be aware, is this a northern king or a southern king? The northern kings, none of them are good. The southern kings, most of them are not good. Occasionally you get one who's good. But the northern tribes wind up, the Assyrians come and destroy them, carry them off forever. Their identity is utterly lost. Years later, the Babylonians carry off Judah, and they're in exile, but Judah comes back. You read Ezra and Nehemiah, we could, find, we could trace people back to Judah. We know who the king should be. We could trace people back to Levi. We still have priests. But where are the people of Issachar and Simeon and Asher? They're gone forever. There's no tracing the line. They're scattered out there. Now, what's the story of Joseph? The story of Joseph is about the son who is lost. We will never find him. And then you find that God has preserved him for a purpose. Years later, nobody expected it. Israel, the northern tribes, you read the prophetic literature and they read Ezekiel talking about Judah and Ephraim. A lot of the prophets refer to Israel as Joseph. That becomes the terminology for the northern tribes long before they're scattered. And the warning, Joseph, you will not be fruitful unless you connect yourself to our king, to our worship. And they're scattered what seems permanently. So all of this is a context. So then the Christmas stories, we never have time at Christmas to rehearse all of this. And so we just go through it. There was a star in the night, and so let's put stars in our church. But here's a story of a guy, now interesting, from a, from a literary perspective, his father's name is Joseph. I don't think there's any theological significance to that. But I'm like, well, that's interesting. And not his biological father, but there's this guy named Joseph in there. Don't make too much of that. I just find those kinds of things interesting. But the details that matter, there's going to be a census. So where does uh, the family go? Where is Jesus to be born? Well, it has to be in Bethlehem, the city of David, because he's of the line of Judah. But then you have these interesting things where he has to flee and go to Egypt, and when he returns, he doesn't return to Bethlehem, he doesn't return to Jerusalem, he returns to Galilee in the north. And so the story of Scripture is coming together, and, and Jesus then comes down to Jerusalem and these, these arguments with the religious leaders, and you see the complex you know, situation there. They hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans are, are, are mixed breeds. Some of our people are with them, so they're not true. Their worship is false. But then you get to Acts, and there are these Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews. Well, the Hebrew ones are prominent because they're from here. They know who they are. The Greek speakers are the ones who were scattered. And yes, they come back, they're welcome, but not like us. So Jesus comes from the north, and they accuse him of being a Samaritan. And they wonder why he hangs out with the sinners and the tax collectors, and he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And we read that as individuals and say, wow, that's an invitation for me. But you read the scripture... And you wonder, will anyone ever go after the lost? What happened to Joseph? What happened to Israel? What happened to Simeon and Levi and Reuben? And Jesus comes and says, I've come for you, but I've also come to regather God's people, to reconstitute, to fulfill all things so that there will be a family that will have God's blessing, but now will extend the blessing to the ends of the earth. We no longer know who's, who's genetically Israel and not Israel, but it no longer matters. 
because God will bring them in and God will invite everyone else in. Jesus is the one that brings this story together. And he winds up being the shepherd, the rock, the one who shows that he's the right king because he's the king who lays down the life for his sheep. He doesn't forget about Joseph because they're gone, but he's the one that allows himself to be betrayed and rejected so that his being sent outside allows him to send his people out to gather everyone in. Now, uh, he was condemned for us. We're forgiven. He was sent out and lost so that we would be found. Uh, the wisdom of God is not simply that he needs to fix this one family, but through this family, he's going to fix this broken, messy world. How on earth will he do it? Well, you read the scriptures, and, and in a surprising and what seems impossible way, Jesus, as the climax of the story, is the one who brings everything together. So in Colossians 1, we read about the greatness of Jesus Christ in so many specific ways. You follow verse 15 and following. And what do we read? In him, all things hold together that in everything he might have preeminence. Reuben, you are not going to be preeminent. Who will be? Well, one day, it's not going to be Judah, but one of his descendants will have preeminence. And the hope for us is not simply that God is so unlike us that we marvel in his glory and his grace and his majesty and his wisdom and his holiness, unlike any of us, but of his grace and mercy that all things hold together, not simply the story of scripture, but our broken, confused lives, when we come to Christ, start to be repaired, that, that the things that don't make sense, the things we don't understand, start to be fixed and come together. It's not instantaneously that instantly we know who we are and how things work. We struggle to read the Bible. We struggle daily to make sense of our own lives. But, but there is one redemptive story, and every one of us is invited into it, and we're told, you can choose another story, but it's not going to end well. Christ is preeminent. He's the center of all things. And if you understand him, you will then start to understand truly. And so here's two things you could do with that. One, in, in, in your Bible reading, we need to read the Bible regularly, seriously. But it's hard to do. It's hard to make sense of that. There are other books that read more easily. There's no quick way to understand everything in Scripture. But if Christ is not the center, the climax, if all things do not point and hang together in him, you're going to misread it. And so, so much of Jesus' ministry was debating about interpretation with people who were reading the scriptures wrongly. And only after his resurrection did he open the eyes of his disciples and say everything would be fulfilled. And now you can understand the scriptures. So like a mystery story, a good story where at the end comes, and you're like, I thought I knew, and maybe I knew a little bit, but I'm still surprised things start to make sense. And then you go back and you're like, there's this detail here that I completely missed. I read past it, but it now makes sense. There's this thing here I held on to that I thought was important and it's part of the story, but it wasn't important. Once you know the climax, then you go back and things start to make sense. The Bible will not instantly fall together for you, but in your wrestling with certain passages, what on earth does this mean? What do I do with it? We're told to grapple with how is this part of this long, complex story that leads to Jesus being the fulfillment? to broken humanity, having grace and favor from God who alone is the shepherd, the rock, the savior. We have to wrestle to, to read scripture and God will lead us in that by the spirit he will show us Christ. But now you in your life, you need to do that reinterpretation. Who am I? How do I make sense of the details? What details matter? Well, if Christ has come and God is gracious and generous, 
it means you need to reassess your life, your past and your future. So now the Christianity talks about this new life. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. You are a new person if the Spirit has come, if you're in Christ. If the Lord has opened your eyes and you see him and you're following him, the old is gone, the new is coming. That's hopeful. In the past, you were a failure. Don't assume that for the future. And we have to recognize the newness of the new. But what happens to so many of us is the energy wears off, the excitement wears off, and we restabilize in the old pattern. <laughs> At the end of the day, maybe the gospel's true, maybe it's good, but I'm still the same failing person. And so on the one hand, we need to remember there's a newness. Don't worry about the past. But on the other hand, Christianity is not just about a magical, everything is forgotten, you're new. But it's about repair. It's about redemption. It's about going back and saying, well, maybe you did fail. But that doesn't mean God wasn't with you. And it certainly doesn't mean God won't be with you. So then you relook at your life and you say, <laughs> you know, objectively, apart from Christianity, you know, as a mature person, I look back, and, and when I was in the second grade, I didn't hate gymnastics, and I wasn't terrible at it. I, I actually really liked drawing, but I wasn't great at gymnastics, so I didn't do it. And when I got to middle school, yeah, math became hard, but I was really good at history. But it was in high school when that person broke up with me. I never thought I was bad at gymnastics until I started to think that I was bad. I never thought that math was a problem. I, I looked back and all of a sudden I saw a pattern that I had not seen until that moment. And now I've reinterpreted my life in a way that I hold to. <laughs> you know, 30 years old, 40 years old, I look back and here's the narrative. I'm a person who fails. I'm a person who tries and it never works out. That is me. That's how it's been. That's how it will be. One of the reasons that Christianity presents God is gracious and merciful. The only way there will be a redemptive story is if there is a remarkable grace and remarkable mercy. And what we're told is the gospel presents that. Jesus comes in mercy, in grace, in truth. And so it's not only that he gives us a new future and a new identity, but he gives us a new way of looking back and re-remembering and, and starting to say, yeah, maybe I did fail as a, as a second grader, but... What kind of pressure should I put on a second grader to have been perfect? But, but I'm remembering it wrong. I made so much of it. But even then, God was weaving my story to, to bring me to the point that I now see what I see. I now am who I am. And maybe God will use my talents, my abilities for his glory. But maybe God will use my experience in failing, in misery, in having foolishly thought that God wasn't with me and that I was untouchable and unlovable. To find that that aspect of my story is where I learn more the grace and mercy of God. The thing that I hated, if that had not happened, I would never willingly see the love of God. Now that I see it, the more I'm reminded of my shame, the more I'm able to be free of it because the greater the shame, the greater the grace of a God who doesn't hold you by that, doesn't see you that way, but gives you a new name and a new identity, who himself bears it. And it's that healing process as we re-remember and we look back and say, yeah, this is a pattern, but these are not the only data points. I've magnified the wrong things. There's a pattern of God having been at work in my life before I knew it, of God being there when I didn't see it. And it's sort of like in the way of uh, with physical therapy, you know, there's an accident or something, and all of a sudden your entire body is reoriented around an injury point. And so it's not simply that, you know, now my hip is broken, but now uh, my whole body is reoriented around it. So you have to do the, the painful work there um, not just in the problematic area, but everything around it. There's a, a spiritual therapy, to use that analogy, 
where there are things that are part of our lives and we reorient, we build our whole lives around it. And, and part of the work of the Spirit in us is to set our eyes on Christ and to free us from our, our obsession with ourselves to create a new possibility. That in looking at Him and realigning everything, it's not simply that our injuries are healed, but, but our assets, the goodness, all of that is, is put back in its right place until uh, the restoration starts to work. Uh, there's a story that is uniquely told in the, in the Bible, and it's God's story of what he would do. And it's with sinful people. It's with Joseph who uh, will rebel and who will leave and who will be scattered and lost. But it's about God who will send his son through the line of Judah to be the only ruler to go and seek and save and to regather a new people by his grace and his mercy. If you join your life with Christ, it's not simply that... There's a power of the Spirit that comes and brings healing, that brings grace. It's in the daily prayer, the daily scripture reading, the daily gathering of the community to remind each other of what really matters, that through the painful struggle, we grow, and we are made more like Christ, and we come to be who we are, and we become effective and glorious, and we become witnesses not only when we're doing wonderfully, but even when we're struggling and failing. When the world despises failures, we, we point to Jesus Christ, who it seemed failed when he was crucified. But that was the love and grace of God. And the pattern is suffering and glory. And in our present sufferings, we trust that through Christ, there's a future glory. And so the story is redemptive. You're invited to it. Um, so come to it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, even today in our gathering, even with some of us who have been Christian a long time or some of us who are bright enough to instantly get so many things, we get so much wrong, and the wrong doesn't simply dishonor you. It, it leaves us confused. It leads us struggling so unnecessarily. We lose sight of mercy and grace because we're overwhelmed with our own shame, our own failure, with the idols of the world. Send your spirit, Lord, not only to open our eyes, but to to shine that light deep into our very being so that every aspect of who we are, our identity, our past, our story, our behaviors, our hopes, our aspirations, everything would bring, would have renewal uh, by your grace with you as our shepherd, founded on you as our rock. May you, the Almighty, be our strength. And I pray for everyone here. I pray for the struggling. I pray for the hurting. I pray for the confused. I pray for the proud. Lord, we are all in need of change and redemption. Do that work in us powerfully. We appeal to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.